Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rabona Podcast. Thank you for joining us again for this episode. We're calling the end game because it's previewing the World Cup final and also reviewing everything that's gone before in this fabulous tournament. Joined again by Michael De Silva and by the elusive producer Ryan making his spoken word debut on the podcast today. We will also be joined later by Sid Lowe giving us the lowdown on where Spain go from here and Rory Smith with his impressions of the tournament so far in Russia. Ryan, welcome. Throwing at the deep end. How are you feeling? Enjoy the tournament. <laughs> you let me out of the cupboard. <laughs> Michael, we good to see you again. Hi, Musa. We thought we'd let Ryan out for the last one. Yeah, it's raining. Right You've let me out and I've missed the weather. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, there's, there's so much good stuff to talk about. And so let's, let's plunge right into it. Yeah. And Ryan, let's, let's maybe start with you. Um, let's just go straight in. Your player of the tournament so far. Uh, well, we were talking about this before we came on air, weren't we? we were, I think it's either... It's a toss-up for me between Modric or Kante. Yeah, okay. Why Kante? Well, Modric is a more obvious choice, I think, because of his prominence. But I think Kante... Well, Kante, he's basically been doing what he's been doing for the last few years in the Premier League, and that is effectively controlling the game without anyone noticing that he's actually controlling the game. Right. Um, massively under the radar. Super important. Really makes France What's your favourite Kante performance so far, would you say? Probably... Well, actually, I think the Belgium game was really impressive mm. because a lot of people focused on Mbappe and Pogba. Pogba right. seemed to get more of attention in that game than he had done in the whole tournament. Right. Either the Belgium game or Argentina. Uh, yeah, I, I would like. Actually, I have to say Argentina is my favourite from him only because the way that he controlled space in front of the back four. And Messi didn't play badly, but he just couldn't get free of, of him. Yeah, I think the reason I would mention the Belgium game, though, was because I think Belgium were a much stronger side. And right, I think, okay. actually, they were the France were the first team in the tournament that really controlled Lukaku and De Bruyne. Right. Not so much Hazard. I think Pavard had a hard time right. against Hazard. But a lot of people afterwards were saying that Lukaku was bad or De Bruyne were bad, like the pair of them were bad. And actually, sometimes you just got to flip it the other way. And I think that France supremely defended Lukaku. Whenever he got anywhere near the ball, he had at least two guys around him. And the same with De Bruyne. They shut him down quite quick. They pushed him into very dangerous areas, and sort of less dangerous areas, sorry. I mean, if you look at the second half in particular, you saw him pulling out to like really far on the, uh, wide on the right, deep on the left. You know, not the positions where he likes to cause the most damage, I think. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think my player of the tournament so far has been uh, Mbappe. Oh, okay. um, maybe uh, he hasn't dragged um, France kicking and screaming to the final like we perhaps thought he would and then the way Modric has done for Croatia um, but this guy's 19 years old he scored four goals in this tournament and the whole French team is centred around getting the best out of Mbappe um, and as a result I mean he's the, the performances have been there he hasn't I don't think any teenager has made an impact on a World Cup uh, like he has since Pele did in 58. Um, it's not easy to perform at the level he has at his age. Um, so for me, he's been great. I mean, I think the guys you mentioned are all, you know, Kante, Modric, both fantastic. But I think Mbappe is, has um, has lit up the tournament for me. Whenever I've seen France, I've been so impressed by him. Well, I mean, I've got a slight bone to pick for France. I know they've been a team I've tipped for success. But they are also jointly responsible for the only nil-nil draw at the entire tournament. Uh, the Denmark <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't really a, it was a bit of a dead rubber. Well, then, well, it? well. There, was, there were other dead rubbers, and they didn't end in nil-nil draws. I just wonder. 
I just wonder if there's something more we can expect from them. Like, have they played too far within themselves? They've been too defensive. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I like what France are doing, but I wonder if there's an extra gear they might have after Deschamps leaves. Am I being fair on them? I don't know. I think they definitely have at least a couple of extra gears, but the Deschamps philosophy is if they score one, we score two. Mm. And no more than two, by the way. Right. <laughs> um, and playing within themselves is almost key to their philosophy. They were goaded into action against Argentina, weren't they? When Argentina went two on up, we saw the kind of bloody nose France, wasn't it? You know, Argentina gave them a bloody nose and they came out. And then for the half, that half hour is still the most thrilling half hour of, of attacking football I've seen in the tournament, just because they were, they were relentless. Yeah, it's been amazing. And it, it's just a, a kind of insight into what we might expect from them in the final if Croatia do push them right. um, all the way. And this Croatia team, I think we should talk about them for a while because they've... There's something special going on with them. I mean, they're the, the 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 smallest nation to reach a World Cup final since 1950, population of 4 million. Um, Uruguay um, are the previous uh, um, smallest nation to go this far. Um, and, yeah, they seem to have the wind in their cells. I mean, this is, you know, uh, uh, Modric is obviously their, their key player. He's at his absolute peak. Um you know, Rakitic, Mandzukic, Perisic, Rebic, Lovren. These are all guys who are, um, this is their moment. Right. And if it doesn't happen now, it's probably not going to happen. For Only them. because the sheer, there'll be a backlash, I think, in the next two to four years from other big teams. Germany Although will be back. They're Spain all going to be back. Right. Um, and also, you know, sometimes the stars just align. Yeah. And, you know, Looking back at so Croatia, made the semi-finals in '98, of course, um, going out to France. Um, since then, 2002, out in the group stage. 2006, out in the group stage. 2010, didn't qualify. Um, 2014, out in the group stage. And it's just happened for them this year. Right. It's it's almost a sort of it's um. Well, they call it a, it's like a Cinderella moment, moment, isn't it? You know, they've gone all the way through. And I think the thing is with finals, it's so unpredictable. And France will be carrying the burden of having lost a very winnable final in 2016, a very winnable final, which they, they didn't win because they didn't take enough risk. And I just wonder if that memory is going to be haunting them. That's a very, very good point. And, you know, if they were to lose two finals under Deschamps with the, the crop they've got... You know, they might not get over that mental. I actually hurdle. wonder. But that's the thing I'm, I'm worrying about. Actually, I think you know, for France to lose a second straight major final could be as damaging as it was to Argentina losing those two copas. Yeah, because they were absolutely shot after doing that. Yeah, and you know, this final goes to extra time, which quite a few previous finals have. Um, I think I might back Croatia at that point. Can I be honest? Actually, the strange thing about this final is it's going to force Deschamps to do something which he doesn't like doing, which is to hit early and dominate early. If you look at the Belgium game, France basically gave Belgium the ball. They were like, you know, quite happy to let them do their thing. And a similar thing with Croatia against England to an extent um, for the first maybe half an hour. I mean, England were given a lot of credit for kind of dominating that that op those opening um, that opening period. But I think it was more that just Croatia just didn't didn't come out well it's, it's not controversial for me to say this but i think whoever scores first is going to win this game see i'm not so sure about that actually sorry really? yeah i just think that croatia against england seems so comfortable or not comfortable but they did not panic you didn't really see much panic in the first half and i actually watched the game back again yesterday because i watched it out and uh it felt very much like england completely dominated that first half and could have gone in three Three up. Well, they should have no, gone. I mean, to, they should have gone in two nil. Yeah, Kane, definitely. Kane missed a. I never felt they. I never felt they dominated. Well, this is the thing, and yeah. then but then I watched the, the watched it again yesterday on my own, and um, even I, I didn't. It didn't feel like England dominated anywhere near as much as they actually did when I was watching it live, and as much as like the halftime commentary mm. in England or punditry kind of said. So. I think if France do score first, I don't think that's going to bother Croatia as much. Yeah, maybe. I don't think Croatia are the kind of team that are going to panic no. if they I were don't, to go, go down. My point was more that... My point was more that... I mean, they're different teams, but the, the, the opening goal from France forces Croatia to open up and chase, and the speed, the sheer speed that France have in behind 
is mind blowing, and that's decisive. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, if you, that, that's a good point because if they, if that makes it, sense, not not, you, not not in relation yeah, to yeah. panic, more a tactical thing. Yeah, and if you look at Croatia's back line, um, they're very solid, and I think Lovren deserves a shout out. By the way, he's come, no, he for came sure, under for sure. so much criticism um, last season, and you know, Champions League final, World Cup final. I mean, <laughs> he's he's emphatically proven wrong. But my point is that they're not a defence that's blessed with mobility or speed. Mm. And um, as you say, if um, if they're exposed to Mbappe's pace, it's going to be... Which you'll have to be exposed if you're trying to push up and score. Exactly. Can I just say about Lovren as well? This is really... I, I have to say this because, I, you know, I don't talk much about Lovren, but it, Lovren has been the victim, I think, of a lot of unfair stigma because the way that Liverpool play, quite frankly, those the, the way they play so high up, it reminds me of watching Bayern Munich um, under Guardiola when they played against Juventus. And at one point, you know, you know these Guardiola formations, they put the team out, you're like, what the hell formation are they playing? And it turned out that actually the last man was Vidal, Arturo Vidal. And they had, I think at one point, Bayern had, you can go back and look at that match. In the first half at one point, they had 10 players in the first leg, 10 players in the final third, mm. 10 players. And Lovren, so often before Van Dijk arrived, was completely exposed. And the kinds of mistakes that he makes are when you've got no one within 30 yards of you. So you try to do a step over to get out of trouble. And of course, it looks bad on Twitter because everyone turns into a vine or a Mm -hmm. gift and everyone's laughing. But if you look at his positional awareness and his ball skill, this is not a player who is a clown. I'm pretty sure that Klopp said to him, you're going to be exposed a lot this season. You'll make mistakes, but it's for the greater good, which is why his own players don't chew him out because totally. they know that he's in that that sort of perilous position. Yeah, and one mistake that I that comes to mind is against Spurs, who beat them four one at Wembley, um, and the ball just sailed right over Lovren's head, and Spurs scored. But as you said, that's a result of being exposed by by centre defence. Uh, sorry, central midfield that's not pushing up. Can I ask and- this as well? Tactical systems, because, sorry to jump in, yeah. but this is, I feel this is important. I went to watch Barcelona play once and I saw Peak, and I remember, I remember realising, my goodness, these defenders are so brave because when they play with these three at the back, you have Umtiti, it's not three, it's not like a close back three, it's Umtiti, literally almost a left winger, and Mascarano, who's short out on the right, and then Piquet in the centre, and then Busquets, like 30 yards, and there is literally 30 yards between any of these players and that gives you the freedom to push Messi Neymar Suarez up front as a trident. Mm. And the reason they look so good is because all this space behind them is being sacrificed and covered by, you know, mm. it's it's really unfair. So it's like you're expecting Lovren to guard a post against, you know, five attackers. It's wild. He's mm. going to make mistakes. You can, yeah. put, you can put any centre-back in the world in a system that leaves them massively exposed and they won't look as good as they will do in a system Thank that you. works for them. And that's the price you pay for Gagan pressing. It's the unacknowledged price mm. and the reason Lovren has been so bullish in the media is because he knows he has to correct the narrative and he does and actually mm. to be honest I back him on that when he says I'm one of the best defenders in the world I'm like yeah you are mm. because actually if Lovren if someone who was not as good as Lovren was playing for mm. Liverpool they concede many more goals yeah yeah I mean I'm an Arsenal fan I've seen many central defenders been shipped off to the yeah. the centre-back graveyard over the years and there's a failure of, of like structural like just Mustafi, structural Mustafi is a good player and he makes bad mistakes but this is a guy that at Valencia was absolutely superb this is a guy that was part the World Cup squad this is not a clown mm. and it gets me a little bit angry on social media when you see people being chewed out because social media is influential mm. you know it affected Raheem Sterling at the last Euros like it, it does influence players I get really frustrated when I see these lazy analyses and some go oh Musa leave it alone it's not important well it is important because this stuff gathers momentum and it builds narratives that are unfair mm. we'll take a quick break now and afterwards we'll be joined by Rory Smith of the New York Times live from Moscow Roy, uh, first of all, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on. Um, and yeah, I guess just sort of jump straight in. What are your kind of key impressions of this tournament? What have you felt about it? Uh, I, on a on a football level, I think it's been really good. I think it has. I'm not not sure it's been kind of the best World Cup ever, which is how it's been described in certain quarters. I think we, we, we now have a tendency, we probably always had a tendency, to get right. slightly overexcited by major events while they're happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's, then there's always kind of a reaction to that afterwards, like a battle action. You end up with people saying, well, actually, it wasn't that good. I remember this bit was bad. And <laughs> played Denmark, yeah. it was 0-0. But if you look at kind of all the, I guess, the key metrics, um, there's only been one goal of straw. There's not been very many, very many red cards. There's been lots of goals. There's, it's a subjective thing, but there's been lots of good goals. 
Um, I think the one thing we've maybe missed a little bit is an outst- a truly outstanding team. I don't think either France or Croatia are kind of teams for the ages in the way that, say, Spain were in 2010. There's no sense that this is kind of the culmination of a, of a dream for a, for a team that's been close for a while. Um, I think it, it, it loses something when, when you lose all of the big names really early on. Yes. I, and that's not necessarily like a romantic viewpoint, but I think we maybe could have done with a Germany or a Brazil or a Spain going a little bit further. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's been nice to see all those shots, to see smaller countries competing. That's really good. Uh, I think there's been an interesting stylistic shift in the, that's helped that, which is the, kind of the, the rise of, of, of pressing and of, and of counter-attacking football being kind of very much on vogue, I think, has, has levelled the playing field a bit. Right. Uh, and then off the pitch, it's been really well organised. Um, it's probably changed my impressions of Russia a little bit. But at the same time, I don't think we should pretend that the, like the World Cup bubble is a real thing that has. This isn't a re, this isn't the real Russia. The World Cup cities are not the real Russia. They will change when the World Cup goes away and the carnival moves but on. FIFA, do that, FIFA do that so well, don't they? FIFA do create that. That's their. That's their. I suppose that's their unique genius, isn't it? They create that environment, the intensity of what they schedule the matches and the, the fan zones. They just they do that really well, don't they? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think to an extent it's organic. Like if you put. If you put like fifty thousand Colombians into any place, it, it will be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of what fifty thousand Colombians will do for you. Um, but yeah, the, the whole thing is is, is is sort of FIFA landia, really. Like the right. uh, even the stadiums look the same. It's really apart from your Katerinburg and maybe the, the Lozhniki. Once you're inside a stadium, it's really hard to tell where you are because yeah. they all look exactly the same. There's no kind of there's no there's no identifying marks almost. Um, the the cities have been kind of. <sighs> cleansed a little bit and right. you know there's been big facades put up and they've cleared the streets of traffic and there's no cars and it's, everything's pedestrianized it's a theme park and, yeah. and yeah. i think i don't know like i've had this conversation with someone this morning that that i think in the run-up we were probably slightly too negative about what russia was like but i don't think that was necessarily a, Russof- a russophobic thing i think it's to do with the way that the western media particularly in britain kind of treats all major events, which is it was the right. same before London 2012. No one thought London 2012 would be a disaster more than the British newspapers. Yes, yeah, for sure. That, I mean, sure. That, that applies wherever we go. And it's because, it's because saying everything will be fine in two years' time is not the story. Whereas if there's, if there's something to worry about, then the media worries about it. Um, but, it's, yeah, at the same time, I, I don't think that, that the, the kind of the, the, re, the reaction to that, which has been to say, well, actually, Russia's amazing. Like, we shouldn't forget about the human rights abuses. We shouldn't yeah, forget about yeah. the lack of freedom of press. We shouldn't forget about the way they treat, they treat black people or, or LGBT people. You know, it's, it, there are issues here that are not solved by staging some football matches. And mentioning that is not being a party pooper or, or being negative or being Russophobic. It's, it's just looking at a country in a clear-eyed way. And we shouldn't be, have our eye drawn away by the baubles and the glitz and the glamour of the World Cup. Hey man, that's it. it is what it is. No, I'm, I'm glad. Look, I'm, and that's how a lot of us feel about it as well. Like you know, I've been following actually events in Russia for a very long time from a human rights lens, and just you know, it is what it is. I think we're going to see. We saw the same thing with Equatorial uh, Guinea and Gabon for the African oh. Nations Cup. You know, we had that, and we're going to see the same thing in Qatar. And it just, you know, a tournament bubble is what it is. Uh, no, but thanks. But, well, I think sorry. the best example is Ukraine, and right. and obviously there were all the stories about hooliganism and racism in Ukraine, and none of them came to pass in the Euros in 2012 and everyone went to Ukraine and had a great time and it was a brilliant country and then two years later there was a war. Right, exactly. exactly. You you can't tell from a World Cup it's not an appropriate gauge of what a country's like or the reality of a country and the worst thing you can do is send a load of sports journalists in and ask them to write sort of social pieces about a country they've never never been to before properly for more than two days for a Champions League game. It's it's, it's unfair. Yeah, I I don't want to name names but I think a couple of people were kind of pitching at the deep end in that respect and you know, you can see who hasn't been following it for 10 years because there's just stories you're unaware of. And it, it's actually an unfair... It's an unfair thing for an editor to put someone on deadline and be like, OK, give me a piece on that because they're just not going to get the goods in that time. Well, also, you, you can only write your own, your own impressions. And our own yeah. impressions have, I think, for most journalists, have been... Good, have yeah. been uniformly good because that's what happens during World Cups. <laughs> and it was the same in Brazil. And, you know, I, I, I'm much more familiar with kind of issues in South America than I am in Russia. Yeah. I wouldn't pitch myself as an expert on either of them. But... You know, during Brazil, people, you know, we were aware of the protests and we were aware of the kind of the fact that these stadiums were, were ridiculous white elephant, elephants in a country that really yeah. could not afford them, uh, which I suppose actually, to be fair, is one legacy of in Russia that isn't quite as problematic. This is a country that yes, can probably afford to build those stadiums. Right. Um, the other, whether, whether it's the best use of money is a different matter, but it's not, you know, it's not quite as 
as direct a contrast. You know, it's not that we're going to build the stadium and not build any hospitals. Right. There is, there's more money available. But, you know, in, in Brazil, everyone had a great time. It was a brilliant tournament. The atmosphere was amazing. Brazil is a fascinating, lively, vibrant country. But just as you have a great time doesn't mean that, that the issues have gone away. So sure. They're just, they're I'm, just, I'm, I'm just very skeptical right. about the way that I was skeptical about the coverage initially, and I'm skeptical about the way the coverage has now become positive, as though we were wrong to write about. Yeah, no, the pendulum, the pendulum swung. But I think, I think, I think, like you say, I think as, as with events on the field, you know, there is this tendency for hyperbole and I think again as you say the kind of the corrective influence as you know we have distance in the tournament people start assessing it in a more balanced fashion I think that is that, I think that that's going to happen as well with with things in regard to Russia uh, but before I before I forget I want to throw something else um, at you I want to ask you who your favorite player has been in this tournament because I think that will reveal something about the nature of the football we've seen so far yeah, I th- so I think well, I think it probably has to be Luka Modric. Ah, okay. Although I, 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 after the semi-final on whatever night the semi-final was, I, I I've become a proper Simo Vesalco fanboy. Ha <laughs> ha! <laughs> oh no, you too! Another one has fallen. <laughs> because he was he was outstanding, it's terrific, despite clearly not being fit. Mm. And then he came out in the mid zone and, and said something interesting, which is that for any journalist is the double whammy of <laughs> play well, say something brutal in the mid zone, yes. then you know we we yours. But I think Modric has been. You're referring to his just the, you're referring to his assessment of England, supposedly yeah. being a better team than everyone said. But actually, when we pressed them, they reverted to long ball. Yeah, I just and that's just. It, it, I think he, he was absolutely right. I think that's not that's an apposite description of, of what happened what happened to England against Croatia. Yeah. Um, but also, I think that just having the nerve to come out and say that is the Croatians have been very pleasingly bullish about. Yes, everything. they have. I, haven't they? I, yes. I admire that. <laughs> Modric uh, came out and gave it both barrels. The last time I've seen someone that brutal, I was watching, it was uh, George Galloway went to the Senate and gave a testimony. And he was, you know, Galloway is who he is. And he basically just opened up on everyone, which is, you know, without decorum. And you don't hear Modric just come in and just basically, I mean, he just gave it to everyone, didn't he? He unloaded. He did. I mean, I think the, what Modric said about, you know, the, the English press was saying that we were tired and, you know, we'll show them who's tired. I thought... I, I don't want to criticise Luka Modric because he's been fantastic right. for the last 15 years, but and he's you know he, he can say what he likes. But I, I do think he's got the run end of the stick on that one a little bit. I think mm-hmm. that it was fair enough to wonder whether a team that had played extra time twice and gone for penalties twice in um, in in the last 16 in the quarters, it's fair enough to ask if they might be a little bit tired. And I think it came from a place of respect more than anything. It, yeah, it came yeah. from a kind of a place of look, you no know, Rakitic, Modric. Richmond Jukic, these are fantastic players, but they might be tired. That's it's our, you know, that's our yeah. chance. Yeah. I think that's that that was the tone of it, rather than these guys aren't fit, they can't cope. And, <laughs> but look, I mean, players, players, and coaches will find whatever it is to inspire them that they need. They they do what they do to, to get the results and the outcomes they need, and you can't you can't begrudge them that. But I, I don't think Modric. Had, I, I think something had been lost in translation. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. I think I was wondering if oh, he was using that as a siege mentality, but I think, no, I think he was just generally very wound up by it and just slightly flew off the handle, um, which is fine. Uh, France, actually, and Pogba, because, you know, Paul Pogba is a subject of great fascination in British press and beyond. Yeah. He's pulled it together, and so have France. What do you think has gone on there? What's changed there? Well, I think there's, there's probably a couple of things. I think one is that he doesn't feel the, the need anymore to be the star because there are other stars around him. Right. So he's not... That, that has that's helped him, I think, because he knows that if, if, if he's been marked tightly and if he can't quite influence the game, he knows that Mbappe or Griezmann or, or maybe not Olivier Giroud, but certainly Mbappe and Griezmann right. might, might be able to kind of step up to the plate for him. I think it's much harder to shut France down than it is to shut Manchester United down. Right. Um, because they have so many more attacking options that you can't just think, right, well, if we, if, if we sit tight on Pogba, that closes them off. Yes. And that's, that's a really underestimated thing. Is, and it's the same when, when you hear people sort of say about Liverpool next season, or, you know, Salah won't be able to score as many goals as they'll man-mark him, and that's true. But then if you man-mark Salah, you've got Roberto Firmino and Sadio Mane. Right. And it's the same with France. Like, you can, if you sit on Pogba, if you dedicate two men to, to controlling Pogba, then that's one man fewer to deal with Mbappe. And I think that is a really important factor. And the other thing is, I think it's been easy to say, you know, he looks like he's listening to Deschamps and he's, he's, he's curtailed his, his wild streak. I don't think that's true at all. I think that he's been given a clear and defined role. And yes. because he's a world-class footballer, he is, he's shown that he's able to do it. I think the problem at United is that he is asked to do more than one thing. Yes. And then he can't, he can't do the two or three things he's been asked to do perfectly. Most players 
need to be given one job. Even Messi only has one job. No one, you know, no one's saying to Messi, kind of, we want you to dribble past seven or eight players, but we also want you to man mark their central midfielder, and and or you know hold the line or whatever. So, I think Podba's been given a clearly defined role, and that's that's got the best out of him. I don't think he's been France's best player. I think Kante's been France's best player. But right, Podba yeah, no, we actually been... we had this discussion here before. Actually, before the podcast started, we were saying arguably Kante the player of the tournament. Yeah, you can make a case for it. I'd, I'd say Modric, but right. the, certainly Kante you can make a case for. The problem that Kante's always got is that he does the work that goes unnoticed. And, yes, and that yes. is, it's not fair and it's not right, but it is kind of the lot of anyone of who, whose job is not to score goals. Well, the shadowing of Messi in the final third was unbelievable, actually. The amount of work he did, just keeping Messi at a sort of safe distance throughout that first half in particular. Um, oh, if I was Barcelona, he'd be the first player I'd sign, can't say. Yes. I think. Partly so you just don't have to play you just don't have to play against him. Yeah, absolutely. Horrible. Um, actually one other thing I was gonna say. So you've just named uh, a cluster of midfielders there. What does that say about the quality of strikers at this tournament? Uh, there's not very many, basically. I think Arsene Wenger, God rest his soul, uh, always said that South America produces defenders and, and strikers and Europe is basically now just producing midfielders. And I think He's broadly got a point. Yeah. If you look at the, the big name strikers that have been here, obviously Harry Kane performed in the first two weeks. If we're all completely honest, maybe didn't quite deliver in the in the quarterfinal in the yes. set, certainly the semi. Yeah. Um, Lewandowski did nothing. Suarez was kind of okay, but not great. Um, it looks like the, the the days. This isn't an era of classic number nine. The day of the, the pure moment. nine, right. That's fair to say. Because a lot, of Luka- a lot of Lukaku's best work took place in deeper areas. Not that he wasn't, you know, he was very good, I thought, but, you know. Well, I thought Lukaku's a tricky one. Because when Lukaku plays well, he's extraordinary. Right. And then, because he, to be honest, and this, this might get me a lot of grief from Manchester United fans, I don't think he's in that absolute top rank, top five strikers in the world. I think he's right. just below that. I think he does still have days where he is... It's not that he plays badly, but he is—he is—he can be controlled. And I think that if you look at the way the French, the, the Brazil could not deal with him at all. Right. Was, they had—he was too—he was too smart. His movement was too good. The, the way Roberto Martinez set up got yes, too, yes, was too clever. You know, they, they shifted Lukaku played wide right that game. Yes, and of course. Brazil, Brazil. So credit to him for being able to play that role to adapt his game, but also credit to Martinez for making the switch. That's important as well. Um, and Brazil just couldn't, couldn't work out what to do. But if you look at the way the, the semi-final went, the French barely gave him a sniff. Yeah, and to be honest, actually, Rory, what I will say is this, and I am a United fan myself, but I think Lukaku actually is probably a, a fairer critic of his own failings, weaknesses. I think if he had that assessment, he might actually be like, actually, yeah, I'm still on my way there. Like, I think he's, that's why yeah. he's, the only reason he's improved is because I think he's been self-critical. There's lots of parts yeah, of his absolutely. game. And you, you, right, you will right. not meet a brighter footballer than, than Romelu right. Lukaku. He right. is, I mean, I was in a press conference with him before the Brazil game and he was answering questions in, in, in Flemish and French, which you expect, and a couple in English, which, you, you know, he, he can do. Turns out he randomly speaks Portuguese because he learned it while he was at Anderlecht as a 16-year-old. He just Whoa. decided to learn Portuguese. That is a hard speaks, language. That is a hard language. He speaks Spanish. He speaks Italian, he speaks German, uh, and apparently he speaks uh, a dialect of Condoleezza Swahili as well. So, Goodness you know, R- Romelu Lukaku is as bright as they come. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you completely. He is, he's a, a very sort of, not necessarily self-critical, but I don't think any footballer is truly self-critical. <laughs> analytical. Yes, yes, yes. analytical. Fo- well. Footballer. You know, they, if you, there's not that much room for self-criticism in football. You can't, you can't doubt. For if you doubt, have doubt, yeah. you don't succeed. Yeah. But he is, he is analytical. He looks... He looks for ways he can improve. He has become a better player. I would still say that if you had if you had Lewandowski at his peak and, Ren- and Romelu Lukaku now, Lewandowski at his peak was a better player. But the, the, those number nines, those kind of true nines, are relatively few and far between. And even kind of the standard bearer of the next generation of, of true nines, Gabriel Jesus, did nothing. Was right. really poor. I'm a he didn't understand why he stayed in Brazil's team. Uh, actually, here's a qu- here's a qu- here's a quick one actually because um, we um, don't want to keep you too much longer, but. Um, I want to ask you this as a follow-up from what you've just said. Can we expect a piece from you? Can we expect an essay from you in the New York Times about the Classic Nine, the death of the Classic Nine? Because I think that you could really pull that off. And will it feature uh, interviews with some of these players? Well, now that you've suggested it, I'll start thinking about it. No, I would, honestly, I would love it because if you're in a flow of things and I, you know, your, your book must has come out, which is uh, obviously tearing yeah, up. Yeah, I think, the, I think the that is, a, it's, it's, it is the sort of sort of slightly pretentious nonsense that I tend to write. Uh, <laughs> listen, Rory, I can't listen. I'm in a glass house. I can't force those. I mean. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the, that's not fair, Moose, if that's wrong. You don't say that about yourself. The, um, no, I think, that, I think that is a pattern. And if you look at 
if you look across the board, really, everyone's becoming a midfielder. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, to me, Roberto Firmino is the kind of, is the archetype of what a lot of, stri- what, 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 what a lot of managers want from their strikers now. And it's, scoring goals is part of it, but it's not the, it's not the whole reason. Lukaku, to be fair to him, can do lots of other stuff. He's not just kind of a, he's not a nine in the, in the way that, I don't know, I mean, Shearer it's a bit harsh, but maybe Shearer was a nine who just, who just scored goals, you know, wasn't really involved in build-up play. Right. Um, except for holding the ball up. Lukaku has way more to his game than that. But I do think that we are... There comes a point where you ask... Every, if you ask everybody to do everything, they become all-rounders rather than specialists. Right. That, is a, that is a fairly logical kind of path yeah. to follow. And I do think that the number nine has been changed fairly significantly in the last, I guess, 10 years by the... By the role of the false nine and by and the kind pressing, of the, the nature, pressing and the play. intensity of the. Yeah, but then yeah, yeah. we're only what seven, eight years from the, from the peak of, of one of the one of the most complete number nines there has ever been in Didier Drogba, who totally re- redefined the role. So right. the these things go in cycles, and it may well be that in five years' time we you know we have a glut of amazing number nines because having an, an amazing number nine yeah. is a competitive advantage again. So you can never you can. Everything, every football, you know, football. Yeah. Two years from now, and back can play it. through the so middle. So it tends to come, yeah. you know, things come back into fashion. Right. But at the moment, there aren't many nines about. Wonderful, Rory. That is an abs. That's absolute gold. We were not expecting to have you for as long as we did. It's, it's been a pleasure talking. To you. So, um, Musa Ryan, um, who's been your your best goalkeeper in the tournament? Do you know what? I didn't realise how good Courtois was against Brazil till I watched it back. Courtois was out of this world. Um, so he's been very good. Is there a rule for how far they have to go in the in tournament to be considered? <laughs> how about you? Who are you feeling? I've got a few. I, I mean, Pickford, it, it, also Pickford has been really, really good. And I don't think it's just his, his shot stopping has been really good, but also his distribution. It's the first time uh, I can remember England having a goalkeeper that really fits into that modern goalkeeper. He is the first person to start the attack you know the amount of times he did it in Croatia where he made a good good saves or collected the ball and then he was trying to distribute straight away mm. um Allison I think as well has been had a really good world cup I'm not sure if he would be quite he just wasn't tested best. enough he's in the conversation though. but yeah, I was really impressed with him actually especially mm. because of the option the options they had there mm. as well yeah I think I, I would probably I mean you know Spurs fan, England fan. Said, yes, if fine. I say uh, if I say Lloris and Pickford, then I'm going to be accused of bias. But I do think they've been the best yeah. two. Um, as you as you the just Lloris save against Uruguay, uh, yeah, was that was unbelievable. Uh, the timing of it, I think, one of the saves of the tournament, um, and the timing of it as well, because this French defence is so effective that Lloris is often not. He doesn't have to do anything for 25 minutes, half right, an right. hour. But he, when he's called upon, he can pull off a world-class save like that. And also the save from Alderweireld in the semi-final. Yeah. Um, that was also absolutely crucial. So when Lloris has, has been needed, he's been there. Um, I think, uh, for me, he is the choice. But um, I think Pickford runs him really close. Um, and that save he made against Colombia... That was amazing. That was, was extraordinary. Was, that was truly, absolutely... Truly one of the best saves I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, he swatted that thing away. And if, if you know, watching the replay again, you just realise how astonishing it is because yeah. it's one of the truly great saves for me because it has everything. Mm. It's the footwork, <laughs> the moment he sees it coming. Yeah. It's like watching... He, just, he readjusted you know, it's so like well. watching. It's like watching Andre Agassi back in the day chasing down a lob. You know, like Agassi would have those epic matches against people like Jim Curry and he would, he would be lobbed and like... Agassi's never going to reach that. <laughs> and he gets back, he gets back and yeah. it's a winner. And yeah. it's, you just see his feet scrambling like he's on his toes. Yeah. He gets back and he gets back up and across. Yeah, well, he's just he's gorgeous. often underestimated because of his, well, he's not short, but for a goalkeeper, by goalkeeper's standards, he's not the tallest, but he has such spring and he can just recover yeah. just when you think he's not going to get the ball. And that, and I think that the, the save against Colombia, the ball just brushed his fingertips, but it was, it was enough. You know, he's like, he's like, sorry, sorry. Go on. He's like Angelo Peruzzi with better footwork. <laughs> that makes sense. I think that's the thing about Peruzzi. that save that's so amazing is that it is literally a fraction of a step wrong. Yeah. And he doesn't make that save. Yeah. But I did see, I found something quite funny on Twitter afterwards where I think it was uh, someone said it was actually his fault that Colombia scored because the ball was going wide and he cost us a corner. So. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, oh Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Twitter. Oh, Twitter, you cesspool. (laughs) 
Sid Lowe, thanks very much for joining us on the Rabona podcast. Pleasure. Um, let's talk about the final. Uh, it's been a great tournament. Um, what are your thoughts going into that? I mean, Modric and Rakitic have obviously been crucial to Croatia's success and you must be keeping a, a keen eye on those two. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that's really interesting um, for me is that the, the, the way that, that Croatia, and I think this is seen through Modric perhaps even more than Rakitic, the way that Croatia have changed during the course of the games. Um, so it's certainly the last two games in particular, I, I think for a player that dominates the ball for a player that plays the way that Modric does, I think it's taken him in both cases at least the whole of the first half to get control of the game, maybe mm-hmm. even longer. You know, you could could be looking at those last two games and saying it took until about the 50th, 60th minute in both games for him to take control. Mm-hmm. But then once he did, um, what a player. I mean, yeah. once he did, once he kind of got a sense of the, the pace of the game, the rhythm of the game, of where it was he had to be to take control of the ball, the, the kind of the physical condition as well, um, his ability to, to last 120 minutes in those games. But not just that, but to kind of, to, to somehow hit, the game got longer. He seemed to be covering more of the pitch as the, as the game went on, perhaps mm. because of an awareness that, you know, these I think the whole of this World Cup has shown this, but obviously some games more than others. This is a World Cup where there's been very little space, where he's had to go looking for it, I think, rather than it just kind of naturally opening up for him. And and I think we've seen a, a very physical Modric as well, a Modric who, who, who as I say, is athletic, in, in athletic terms, really impressed. And I was really struck as well, by the way, something that, that a player told me, I don't know when it was, sometime back in the spring, I think, after a game at the Bernabeu, um, and, and he came through and they'd been beaten by Real Madrid, and he said to me, you know what really is amazing? He said, that you look at Modric and Cruz, and admittedly, you know, I'm extending this now to Cruz, and perhaps that's not fair because we're supposed to be talking about Modric and Rakitic, but, you know, <laughs> bear with me for a minute. Go for it, like, oh, sure. <laughs> he, said, he, he said, you know, you look at Modric and Cruz, and you think, oh, yeah, those are the little creative guys. And, uh, and not to put too fine a point on it, this player said to me, so I thought I'd kick the shit out of him. Um, and he said, and he said, and they didn't even flinch. <laughs> so, you know, you go, you go riding into these guys because you think, you know, they're so talented, they're so creative, but maybe the one thing I can do is kind of intimidate them. You know, is, is kind of put them out of their stride, is to try and push them off the pitch a bit or at least push them off the ball. And he said, you know, you go into Modric and he's made of rock. Mm. <laughs> this guy doesn't move. Right. He doesn't even flinch. And, uh, and I, I, I don't know if you've ever had, I don't know if the pleasure is the right word for this, but the pleasure of seeing Modric walk past you up close. He has calf muscles right. the size of basketballs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's ripped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just absurd. Well, um, anyway, I don't know. I've gone in a, in a, in a kind of... A no, 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 I'm glad you got onto that. The bottom line is that yeah. Modric, Modric has been brilliant at this World Cup. I mean, he's a player that I love watching anyway. And, and at this point, I feel like I should kind of recover and, and pull Rakitic back into this because I think Rakitic has been superb as well. And yeah. it's, it's something I was writing about him the other day. And I think one of the points that, that I tried to make, and I must confess I actually haven't seen the final version of the piece, which almost certainly was edited down because, as usual, I overfiled. Um, <laughs> but there was a line in there that, that, that I used, um, which is, I don't know if it survived the cut, which was that one of the things about Modric is, if, uh, sorry, about Rakitic is, if Rakitic doesn't do certain things, it's not because he doesn't know how to. It's mm. because he doesn't think he should. <laughs> and so right. in, a, in an environment in which Modric carries, if you like, the creative weight of the, the Croatian midfield, Rakitic is that player who is able to be all things to all people around him. Uh, and to give you an example of that, in his final season at Sevilla, um, I'm going to get this the wrong way around, I'm, I, I fear, but I think he scored 17 goals and provided 15 assists, but it might be 15 goals and 17 assists. Either way, a huge number uh, of, of goals and assists and then he goes to Barcelona and he plays a different role and he goes to Barcelona when he's got Messi, Suarez and Neymar in front and he says you know if I have to run 5,000 kilometres for these guys I'll do it and then when Neymar goes and, and Barcelona tilt the balance back towards the midfield this year he's been that player who's played alongside Busquets mm. when he's needed to stepped up to the right hand side when he's needed to driven when he's needed to waited when he's needed to and always had that awareness to say okay this is what's necessary. This is what's required at this point. And, and as I say, I, I think it, I really do think it's worth stressing that people who say, yeah, but Rakitic is just a worker. Yeah, he's just a worker because that's what he's supposed to be <laughs> yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is a player who, who, who I think his willingness to, to kind of sacrifice the qualities that he's got is really, really striking. And in that final season at Sevilla, he would literally, and I don't just mean that you know within the game he would step forward or back, his manager would literally say, right, today our defensive midfielder is Ivan Rakitic. Or today our attacking midfielder is Ivan Rakitic. Depending on the analysis he had made of the other team and where he thought Rakitic would be most useful for them. Because Rakitic was Sevilla's best player 
as a defensive midfielder and their best player as an attacking midfielder as well. And Rakitic, a bit like Danny Alves, and I realise I'm ranting now and going off one. No, go, no, we're, no, we're allowing I'm going to stop, I promise, in a second. No, 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 Rakitic, no please, in please. In that sense, <laughs> I think when you come to analyse him, I think he's like Danny Alves. And I think it is, and, and oh, by wow. that I mean, judge him by what he did at Sevilla, not what he did at Barcelona, even though what he's done at Barcelona in so both can I throw in a comparison is, extra- with, is maybe, extraordinary as well. Can I compare with Clarence Seydorf maybe to an extent as well? Yeah, but, I think that's true. Because Se- Seydorf yeah. is a curious player who could do everything. Right. He didn't always do everything. He did. He tended to do... I mean, the bottom thing, the bottom line, I suppose, is he, he did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. The decision-making is always there. And, and yeah. by the way, by the way, for, for avoidance of doubt, please, please continue ranting because that's why, <laughs> that's why we got you here. <laughs> yeah, we, we can yeah, cut yeah, this down, Sid. I'll be going all day if we do <laughs> no, that. No, 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 no. That's the hope anyway. That's the hope. Um, Sid, can I ask you a little bit about Rafael Varane? Because he yeah. is not a guy who uh, has always been as integral to the French team as uh, he is right now he's really stepped up in this world cup and been superb um obviously bringing that form from from uh from real madrid what have you made of his performances well i mean i i, I say this as someone who who obviously doesn't see enough of the french national team and, mm. and actually even at this world cup certainly in the first phase uh, because i was there and because of course you're so focused on the games that you're covering and so yeah. on uh, i didn't see a huge amount of the the french games in the in first phase sure. although actually with hindsight that probably wasn't a bad thing um, <laughs> because frankly they were pretty dull um, but good, but good you missed Varane, the Denmark uh, game that's for sure yeah that, oh, good grief <laughs> yeah, the, the little bit I did see of that was absolutely appalling I wanted to claw my eyeballs out but the the, the one of the things I, I, I think about Varane and uh, and, and, and I, I would like to, I'd like to claim now that I've said this before, and, and I have, and, and hopefully someone somewhere can vouch for me. I've often said that when you look at Real Madrid centre-backs, and I said for a lot of this season, it got to the point where I would have preferred a partnership of Nacho and Varane than a partnership of Nacho and Ramos or Varane and Ramos, because those mm. two outperformed Ramos all season. Yeah. Now, obviously, it's Ramos, so yeah. you don't change it. And when it comes to the big moments, Ramos always steps up. But I think what Varane does, apart from the fact that I I really do struggle to think of a, a central defender as quick, but of course the speed isn't just about the, the, you know, the, the, the pure physicality, it's about the intelligence, the moment in which you, you break ranks to go and cover or to go and tidy up. And, and Varane spent a lot of his game uh, kind of sweeping up behind Ramos because Ramos is a defender that steps out and of course right. the occasion doesn't make it and then Varane's the one that has to kind of, kind of recover behind him. I also think it's true and it's, it's probably worth adding this because, you know, uh, on, on the basis of fairness, mm-hmm. that Varane's pace on occasion got himself out of trouble. On yes, occasion, the yes. positioning wouldn't be quite right and he'd get himself out of trouble. But there's a clarity and a calmness about Varane that, that, that I really love watching because he's, he's one of those guys who's incredibly quick, uh, very, very tall. But you look at him and you don't think, Wow, this is a you know this is a really powerful player. Mm. He's actually relatively slight. Right. He's actually there's, there's an elegance in the way that he runs, which I, which I really like watching. Mm. As I say, I think there's a calmness to him, and, and and I think he's brilliant. What he's had problems with, uh, fundamentally, actually, has been his 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 physical vulnerability. You know, he's had a lot of very minor little injuries. Um, he's had moments where he hasn't had continuity, but I, I but I really really like him, and alongside Umtiti as well, who's another player I've really liked it's this year. Player. So it's, yeah. it's true that Umtiti the second half of the season well maybe not even the second half perhaps the final third of the season when Titi's level came down a bit but up until then he was another one mm. that, that you would see him and think he's so incredibly cool mm. he doesn't seem to be phased by anything that goes on around him and, and, I, and I think that maybe in the midst of that kind of natural thing in Spain where we talk about PK and Ramos and in truth people talk about Ramos more than PK yeah. but you know as a partnership PK and Ramos maybe you know it's the other two can I say actually backs in Spain? Yeah. Maybe Sid, it's Varane and Umtiti. Who are Sid, I'm going to throw something in because I wrote, I, I tweeted something, and the Barca fans got really upset with me. You know, Barca, <laughs> Barca um, fans on Twitter getting upset. Well, you know, first time for everything, and uh, yeah, groundbreaking work for me. And um, I said that Umtiti was a kind of a cross. He was like a sort of Venn diagram of Piquet and Puyol, and. Mm, someone, I quite like that. Someone got yeah. really, she was like, oh, this worries me. And I think the comparison worried her because I was kind of putting her alongside these greats. Mm. But the point I was making was, if you look at Umtiti, I was watching him against Belgium. And there's one moment in particular where De Bruyne tries to play this incredible through ball. And Umtiti just watches it and doesn't just stick a leg out in desperation. He sticks out as in, I've read this. Mm. I've seen mm. exactly what you're doing. You're looking for the gap and the gap is not where you think it is. And he almost tempted him to playing the pass and just took the ball there's off. There's such him. a confidence to his play, isn't there? Right, right. There's a, there's a real... There are very few centre-backs you see who are that strategic 
in that heat of the moment, mm. that makes sense. And Umtiti yeah. seems to have that. He has that in yeah. spades, I think. I think, that, I think that's fair. I mean, I think, as I say, the, the, the thing that really struck me in the first part of this season, and as I say, it, it, in truth, it did tail off a little bit right. towards the end. But, but the, and, and there were moments, for example, where you saw him get riled with opponents, which, which was really striking. Because early in the season, you know, he would, he, would, he would, as you say, he would see the passes and he would just kind of step across and come away with it. And, you, and it was one of those things, and maybe I'm too English in this, even after God knows how many years in Spain, but it was one of those things you, you sort of almost at first didn't entirely see what he was doing because yeah. there wasn't this dramatic challenge. There wasn't this kind of, you know, wow, isn't he quick? Isn't he strong? Isn't he clever or anything like that? It was just, it just sort of happened all so smoothly. Yeah. And as I say, the, the thing about getting riled with opponents, you would get opponents run across and Titi would just kind of run across, take the ball off them. Quite often they would bounce off him <laughs> and he would just sort of stroll away again as if, all right then, so now what? And there was no desire as well. And I think this is one of the other things because often, I think we tend to, you know, we kind of tend to pigeonhole defenders. And so you go for, to use your, uh, to go to your Puyol analogy, you, you get a Puyol who was kind of all, all kind of blood and brimstone and come flying out the back and win the ball and his hair was all over the place. And then you give it to PK, who would be the elegant passing one. And the curious thing about Umtiti was that Umtiti was, the, was kind of not, would, would kind of not, do the sort of the elegant passing. And so I think that would blind you to the fact that he was elegant in the mm. way that he defended, yeah. not necessarily in the way that he passed. And actually a little bit of that is applicable to, to Varane as well, I think. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think, I think those two have been, have been wonderful. And, but as I say, not massively out of keeping with the way they've played in Spain this season. Yeah. The way the pair of them will handle Mandzukic is uh, going to be one of the more curious battles of, um, of this final. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Sid, about uh, Luis Enrique. Um, he's just been given the, the Spain oh, sorry, job. Sorry, it's, it's, it's Luis Enrique Martinez Garcia. Is, is, that, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, you can. Well, I mean, exactly. This, the, 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 the thing is that the Luis Enrique bit is fine. The problem is when it becomes just Enrique, when, when, the, when the second name becomes a surname, if you see what I mean. <laughs> all right, I'm going to stick with Luis Enrique if it's all right. Yeah, yeah, do. Please do. He's just taken the, the, the Spain job. Do you think that's the right move, um, given the chaos that the team are in at the moment. Yeah, I must admit I've been I've been trying to make up my mind on this mm. and I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> um and and you know I, I I quite often I think I don't know the answer to things and 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 it troubles me because we're supposed to know everything, aren't we? <laughs> and, and, and I kind of look at it and think, well, I don't know where this goes. I mean, I didn't know for example whether it was the right decision to sack Lopetegui and I kind of started thinking yeah, it is. No, it isn't. Yeah, it is. No, it isn't. And by the end of the World Cup, I thought, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, so Luis Enrique, I think there are a number of problematic elements to this. And um, one of them is that Luis Enrique is kind of prickly. He, his, his management of the, if you like, kind of the media surroundings is sometimes a little problematic. Now, there's a couple of things that are worth pointing out here. One, obviously, is that if he goes and wins football matches, who gives a toss how bad his relationship is with the media? Right. Now, that's the fundamental thing. And I fundamentally agree with that, that, you know, what matters is how he coaches, how he manages his team and so on. But big caveat alert here, which is that if you look, for example, at England in this World Cup, I think we've seen that the way that you manage the message, yes. the way that you deal with people actually can be important. Yeah. And you can create a tension that means that, at the very least, that means that this is a manager who won't be given as much time as perhaps his purely training methods necessitate. Right. Now, now, I mean, as a, again, I, I don't necessarily think that's a problem. I also think there's another element in Spain, and bear in mind that the conditions, the, 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 if you like, the environment in Spain is, is pretty different, I think, to, a, to, to most European countries. And it's, it's different because it's dominated, of course, by those two clubs and by the, the way in which they change the the fans' response to things, the way in which they condition the media environment, the way in they condition the relationship between players. And Luis Enrique is not just a guy who's played for Madrid and Barcelona, which on the face of it would be a good thing. You know, here's someone who knows how to manage both. But he's a guy who left Madrid to go to Barcelona and then constantly and repeatedly, and I think he was quite enjoying it, made the <laughs> point of how much better Barcelona were. And, and so this has put a lot of Real Madrid backs up. And, right. and that is potentially problematic. Now, I think once he became Barcelona manager, he largely backed away from that. But there were one or two kind of playful moments of trolling and, and kind of, you know, poking fun. But... But I think that's potentially problematic. Obviously, the fundamental thing is how will those players respond to him and how well will he coach? Now, if you look at it, bring it to footballing terms, and I 
I feel bad and I feel like a hypocrite, a hypocrite only having only just got to the footballing side of it. If you get to the purely footballing side of it, if we take, if we make the assumption that it's not that Spain's model needs to be entirely thrown out, it needs tweaking, it needs right, right, um, yeah. given a, a touch of intensity, it needs maybe, maybe a touch of directness, but within a framework of this is a team that we want to have the ball. That's broadly what he did at Barcelona. Right. And so broadly speaking, that fits with that idea that yes, we want this, but we want it more aggressive. We want it. Um, we want it tweaked. We want some variance on a theme. Although in theory, as I say, Lopetegui in theory was doing all of this. Um, then in that sense, it makes you know it's 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 a logical choice. Obviously, when he went to Barcelona, he did this partly because he had Messi, Suarez, and Neymar up front. Right now, obviously, I say this as, a, as someone who is a you know quite a big fan of people like Isco and Asensio. I really like Iago Aspas, for example. Uh, I'm not entirely enamoured with Diego Costa, but I think if you play a slightly more direct game, he can be brilliant for you. But they're still not Messi, Suarez, and Neymar. No in truth. Or Iniesta, for that matter. Or in Iniesta, exactly. <laughs> and actually, can I just say this? In relation to directness, um, it was funny watching Spain against Russia. And I remember thinking, I hope Spain don't take the wrong lessons from this defeat. Which Absolutely. Is the, you know, because when Iniesta came on, the amount of superb passes he hit into the final third in a short space of time, you know, he really got the ball into feet. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, you just need more directness, as you say. You need just better movement in the final third, better movement yeah. from the striker. Um, yeah, actually, and I think there's a risk, and, and this has happened in Spain, and there was a debate about the style for the first time. Right. Maybe maybe not since 2008, because obviously that's the first European Championship, but first, certainly for the first time since they won the World Cup in 2010, there was a debate about an identity which had previously always been expressed as entirely non-negotiable. Yeah. For the first time, there was this, oh, do we have to not be what we are? Mm. And I think one of the, the flaws in that, and, and you know, all of this, again, is, is, is about opinions, and there will be people who, who, who differ in their, in their viewing of this to, to me, but I think one of the flaws in that was there was the assumption that what Spain did and their style in this World Cup was what went wrong. Now, my my feeling is that actually they didn't apply their style correctly. It's not that it's not yes. that this is Spain's style and this is why they lose. I think their style became. Um, talking to Jorge Vallano about this, and obviously he's a guy who, who's, oh, the poet. Who, who's kind of kind of you know he's very committed to this style. But yeah. I think he's quite right. He's his view of this, and 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 I would broadly agree with this. Is that it's not that Spain's style is this. It's that what they did at this World Cup was like a caricature of their style. Yes, yes. it was their style without the aggression, without the speed of circulation of the ball, without the intent. It became so kind of numbingly prosaic from from one side to the other and back again and no one seemed to want to take any risk no one seemed to want to take anyone on no one seemed to want to circulate the ball with the speed that as you say Iniesta then imposed upon the game and for example I think Spain were brilliant for 30 minutes well maybe not 30 20 minutes against Morocco but they were very good for 50 minutes against Portugal but fundamentally this was a dreadful World Cup and yet even then against Russia those moments of acceleration towards the end and that's not acceleration in terms of let's get the ball quick, get it forward. Right. It was let's get the ball and move it quickly. Mm. And I think that was what was perhaps lacking. I think I mentioned in a previous podcast uh, a quote from Cesc Fabregas, who was uh, a pundit on, a, um, I think, Spain versus Russia. And he said that um, Spain are now keeping the ball as a means of defence rather than a means of attack. Mm. Um, and I think that was a, a pretty um, damning but very wise uh, right, insight, right. yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think for what it's worth, and I, you know, I say this as someone who wrote this about about 2010 and indeed about 2012, is that we sometimes, but even back then, I think we made the mistake of always seeing Tiki Taka as a as a, as a purely um, creative approach. Mm. But I, I think even then, it was a means of defence as yeah. well. It was we have the ball, therefore they don't have it, therefore they can't they can't hurt us. But there was always and I remember, an end product. I remember wasn't there? Vicente Del Bosque saying, for example, you know. People say people say that that you know we're vulnerable and 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 that we get the ball and we're in the other half and, and all we do is keep it. So well, I'd much rather be in the other half keeping it yeah. than in our half having them come towards us. Yeah. And so it was defensive even then. But I think Fabregas is absolutely right that the circulation of the ball was quicker. There was an intent. There was a desire to go and attack. There was an in- desire to attack, even if that occasionally meant we run the risk of counterattacks. And I think what happened in the Portugal game damaged Spain because they got caught out. And they conceded three goals. And you look at it, it's a penalty, a free kick, and a, and a, and a ridiculous mistake. Right. And, and in a way, you can almost, I know it doesn't work like this, but you can, always dis, you can almost discount those goals. Say, look, they don't count, just do the same again. But I think Spain was so 
hurt and frightened by that, so aware of their vulnerability from counterattacks that they played in such a way as to be obsessed with not allowing the counterattack mm. rather than being obsessed with actually attacking the other team. And this was a World Cup in which Spain were defensively vulnerable. Yeah. But I think more than anything else, it was a World Cup where Spain were incredibly blunt in, in, in with the ball when they were trying to attack. Absolutely, actually, said, yeah. can I throw something in there as well? Because yeah. I remember um, reading about Fernando Hierro going, oh, defensive records are so important for World Cup winners. I remember thinking, what about World Cup 2002 when you've got Costa Rica and Brazil just going at each other hammer and tongs for like 90 minutes? Mm. And Brazil conceded a ton of goals in the group stage, but didn't really care. They just got on with it. And I think yeah. it's, I think Fernando Hierro is an experience. I don't want to criticise him too much because it's a difficult situation. I think it showed through there because he didn't have that kind of concept of like a Mario, a Mario Zagallo of growing into a tournament and these are the sort of speed bumps that you have. I mean, people forget that Zidane got sent off in the group stages in 98. Yeah. You know, people well, Zidane, forget... Zidane, the truth is, Zidane was dreadful at the 98 World Cup. Thank you. the final. Thank he you. He was absolutely Thank dreadful. You. Thank you. And then, and then, and then, he ha- then he scores two goals in the final. And look, I'm not going to question Zidane right. in, in kind of broad terms because he's one of the great players and one of the players I've most enjoyed watching. But he was far better in 2006 and in the 2000 European Championships than he was in 98. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely right. But people forget this. Also people forget this. But um, before I forget, uh, because we've kept you for plenty of time, but I want to squeeze in one more question. We can't leave uh, without talking about Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. I mean, you've obviously written a sort of, anyone that hasn't read that piece, I advise to check it out. It's a fantastic piece that Sid has written, a long read really, a great essay on it. But I'm like you, I feel this sense of Ronaldo leaving Real Madrid doesn't feel like a footballer leaving. It feels like a kind of a hedge fund manager leaving after 10 years where he's made (laughs) so much money for the firm and they've rewarded him with a gold plaque and nothing else. Does that make sense? It feels like a strange, sterile department. It's curious. I I mean, my, my, what, what I wrote about, and you know, I don't want to just kind of quote back at you what I've already written, but but the the, the thing that I was really struck by is that I was, I was kind of looking at this and, 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 when you start, and this is inevitable with Ronaldo, and I think it's partly about the way that he plays. And, and you know, in this sense, this is one of the very many areas in which, and I'm going to say it, oh God, I can't believe I'm going to say it. This is one of the very many <laughs> oh, no, areas Messi. which is different to Messi. Oh, and, no. And I, and I, I oh, didn't want to mention Messi, and I've done it now, and I, I feel bad. Oh, and in, in, that, in that piece, I hope you'll have noticed, yes. or maybe it's better that you don't notice, that Messi's not mentioned, because I just don't think it's relevant. Yeah. But mm. um, I've just made it relevant. The Messi versus Ronaldo <laughs> podcast. What an absolute idiot. Anyway, right. <laughs> So, so, so one, obviously it's partly about the way that Ronaldo plays, but I think one of the things that happens is that because Ronaldo in a way is defined by his relentlessness, he's yes. defined by yeah. his, 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 his numbers. And I think the problem is that numbers by definition are cold. And so you get this thing where he goes and it's all about the numbers. And I, I was kind of sitting there trying to write this piece thinking, wow, Ronaldo, what a player. And trying really hard not to be, not to be, driven by let's look at the stats and then it occurred to me as I was as I was kind of you know turning this over in my mind and writing it that in a way it's his own brilliance it's his own relentlessness it's his own incredible effectiveness in terms of goals which almost denies us the chance to yes assess him to kind of impose poetry on him or to talk about him in, in in the terms that he probably deserves and we create this machine of him he is a machine he is a monster he is an extraterrestrial he is a beast all these kind of words mm. you think yeah but fundamentally he's gone because he's a human fundamentally he's gone because he was proud and because he, he didn't feel the love and, and 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 even if we talk about his goals and you know it's inevitable that you do with Ronaldo because that is what kind of defines him that kind of blinds us to what's behind every single one of those goals the amount of work that's there the fact that he's kind of self-created and again we come back to that same problem when you talk about a self-created man you then talk machinery again you talk mm, the kind of animalistic terms again right and right. that 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 leaves me feeling a little bit sad in a way. This guy's brilliant, but of course we define him by his goals because, because f- me, there's loads of them. <laughs> <laughs> but Sid, here's the thing as well about Ronaldo. Like this is the thing that got me about your piece: the desire to be loved that Ronaldo has is something that I think is very much understated. There was a great um, thing when uh, I think Rio Ferdinand was discussing United. They would tease him in the dressing room and he was always like, you know, he was always insecure. Like, oh, what are you saying about me, guys? You know, there's a sense of a guy that wants to be appreciated. I remember thinking how painful that must be to be on the mountaintop like he is, all these Ballon d'Or, but ultimately what you want, you kind of want, you know the way that Puyol was loved by Barca, by Barca fans, mm. that kind of cult hero following. That's what Ronaldo wants. He wants mm. the cult hero following, but he's, he's yeah. never going to—he's never going to have it. Mm. And also, and you know, obviously, I say this as as a writer, and 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 in a way, it provides a challenge for us because you know, you, there's a there's a sense of kind of personal frustration for me, at least, right. in that you're writing about this player and you think, 
I'm almost in a position where I, I would kind of like to write that sort of cult sort of thing. I would kind of like, for example, the write about the kind of things you write about when you write about Iniesta. Or Danny you know, Alves. Or Danny Alves, for example. Yeah, who's, I mean, Danny <laughs> Alves is a lunatic, and that's part of the joy with Alves. <laughs> um, but but you, you sort of want to do that. And yet with Ronaldo, you, you're kind of inevitably drawn to this cold statistical thing, which you sort of don't want to do, but it's, it, it, it's kind of overwhelming, and it takes you with you. And you're right. I think with Ronaldo, there is that sense that, uh, you know, he wants people to love him. And, and I don't know about this. And, and you know, I'm, I'm purely spe- speculating here. But that moment when he scores that overhead kick against Juventus and he goes into the corner, he does that CU celebration where he jumps up and pulls his arms back, which, right. you know, a million, a million six-year-olds copy all over the world. And, and, you know, I say that as what someone who watches too much six-year-old football. Um, <laughs> they, they, they all do it. Um, and he does that. And th- there's this moment where he looks up and thinks, hang on, are they clapping me? These Juventus fans, are they clapping me? And he does that sort of apologetic sort of praying gesture. Yeah. And then he puts his hand on his heart. Mm. And there was a bit of me that thought, bloody hell, for 10 years, you wanted this at Madrid. Mm. Oh my goodness. And you didn't quite get it. Right. And you go to Juventus and you score against them and you get it. And there's a little bit of me that just wonders if emotionally some small part of him inside thinks... Yeah, I want to go and play for Juventus. Do you know that's, that's so that's perceptive? That is so perceptive. It's like when you're, gosh, that's it's just funny. I think you mentioned this as well in the essay. Actually, that did make it in. And I remember thinking when I read that piece that you did, I was like, that is so perceptive. Actually, like we forget that humans, uh, we get we get the football as a human. We forget how emotional they are, and actually, there's more to life than money. Even though he's being paid a, a stack of money there, he could have got that money in many other clubs. But if there's a sense the last three, four years of his career, he wants to be revered like he should have been revered at the Bernabeu. Maybe that's it. Yeah. No, and I think, I think, I think there might well be something in that. And also, by the way, I mean, a big, you know, kind of a big, big caveat to throw into this here. I think it's not entirely fair. And, and I, I know I run the risk of, of falling right. into this trap. I think it's not entirely fair to overplay the coldness and to suggest that he didn't have the love at the Bernabeu because immense numbers of Real Madrid fans absolutely adore him. Mm. Immense numbers of them do. And there's a huge amount of... um, there's a huge amount of recognition of of everything he did, a huge amount of affection for what he did. Um, But... but but it's true that it feels slightly less uh, affectionate than, than it might. And this is one of the reasons why I really liked what, what Marcelo said. And, and because, you know, I frame that piece around uh, a Ramos comment, which is your numbers speak for themselves. And I think there's something slightly sad when numbers speak for themselves, because yeah. you want to speak about other things as well. But the Marcelo comment, which actually came a day after I'd written the piece, sadly enough, um, <laughs> the Marcelo comment was kind of, was was much warmer. It was something along the lines of, one day when I'm older and I've retired, I'll sit in a bar with a beer and I will tell stories about playing with you. And that, wow. I think, kind of carries, obviously carries more emotion and maybe I'm sort of... I'm quite, I'm quite a softy, so I like that stuff. Yeah, I'm sort of guilty of that as well. <laughs> the idea of but, walking but into a bar with a slightly that, overweight yeah. Marcelo. Can you imagine going to a bar like literally 30 years from now and finding That's a chubby Marcelo at the if bar? He, yeah. if, he, if, he, if, he, if he goes super fat and keeps that hair, he's going to look magnificent. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, there, so there was something in that. And, and, you know, as I say, it's worth pointing out that, that a huge number of fans really did adore him. A yeah, huge yeah. number of fans were, 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 were hugely affectionate towards, towards him. Sure. The way that, that, that lots of kids in Spain responded him as I say the fact that he's mimicked the fact that he's imitated the fact that that celebration is done by thousands and thousands of them the number of shirts you see of his but of course it comes down to that that relationship with the president wasn't always wasn't always there as well and there is that remark after the Champions League final and you know from Madrid's point of view in fairness to Madrid they're like look we've had enough of this after the Champions League final you've just won a third Champions League in a row you shouldn't be moaning about the future and and in fairness from Madrid's point of view they're likely to think look that's it you can bugger off um but there's there's a there's a comment after that when he comes into the mix zone eventually, and it took a long time. We we waited a very very long time for him to turn up in the mix zone in Kiev, and he's asked, yeah, but where are you going to be better off than Real Madrid? And he says, of course, this is you know a Real Madrid that's just won three Champions Leagues in a row, four in five years, where he's been Champions League's top scorer every year for six years. And again, I'm frank stats at you, which is problematic, but here we go. No, that's and he said, where, where, where are you going to be better off than Real Madrid? And he says, well, it's very difficult, but life's not just about glory. And at that moment, you think, mm. okay, yeah, there mm. is something else. And there is something else for the man for whom it appeared there wasn't anything else. You know, that this was just a relentless, uh, a relentless cranking up of the statistics game after game after game. Well, I think yeah, that's uh, very true. Well, that's, there is something else. That's like a, that's like a line from a novel. <laughs> so, well, um, Sid, um, on that 
literary note, um, I just got to thank you because it's been an incredible contribution. And we want you to come on and, uh, you know, uh, give us a sort of a wider context. And you've done that in absolute spades. So we're very grateful for your time. Thank you so very much. much. Very much a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this episode, the end of the end game. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and to the previous series during this World Cup. It's an absolute joy to have you along with us. Please follow us at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle is always the same, at Rabonamag. And please all keep your ears open for an announcement about the Podcast coming very soon. Thank you so much. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.